Blue collar people are some of the grittiest, toughest, bravest human beings on the planet. Every building, bridge, and road was built on the backs of their hard work. Every piece of raw material was mined by their calloused hands. They manufacture our goods and transport them around the world. We see that strong outer shell, but there's more to every person than meets the eye. In this podcast, blue-collar business leaders tell their stories of courage and victory over crushing defeats. That's only possible because of a mental and emotional fortitude and a willingness to ask for help. It's our mission to bring hope to those of us who are strong on the outside, but may be living a life of quiet desperation on the inside. We'll do that by working together to tell the truth about the challenges we face and what it really takes to break through them. Everybody, this is Mick Carbo. Welcome to the Tragedy to Triumph podcast. I am beyond excited for our first interview here with our first guest, Cal Byer. Uh, this is an amazing gentleman that I got the pleasure of meeting back in uh, March, I believe, right when the pandemic started. Uh, let's uh, let's let's give everybody a little bit of an introduction to how we met and how things got going here, Cal. Hey, Mick, great to see you today. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's such a, such a pleasure. So uh, I uh, got uh, super inspired about uh, Cal when I heard about him from a, another guy that I met on LinkedIn. Uh, and I, I started getting very interested in this epidemic of suicide in the construction industry. And uh, somebody told me, you got to talk to Cal Byer. He is the absolute authority on suicide prevention in the construction industry. So uh, I, I contacted Cal and we got on the phone and uh, we came, we became best buds pretty much in, in about 30 minutes. And uh, it's, it's been like a match made in heaven ever since. I've really enjoyed your spirit. I think we probably spent four or five calls, usually on Friday afternoon, at the end of long weeks, taking care of people, helping them with their pursuits. And it was a way to always put fuel back in my tank. I always felt like I'm learning when I'm talking to you, and I could tell how passionate you were about what I did to help blue-collar workers and blue-collar leaders of construction companies take better care of people. Yeah, yeah. Thanks so much, Cal. I've been I've been super inspired by the work that you have been doing and by our relationship too. So it's uh it's really an honor and a pleasure to have you here as our first podcast guest. And why don't we get why don't we get started by you just telling us a little bit about you and your background? Yeah, it's a really unusual background. I grew up in Wisconsin, so that's the accent. I'll just explain it to people. Nothing I can do about that. <laughs> But um, father of five children, 28 down to 19, been married for 32 years. My family is really my rock. And I um, am really, really proud of what my wife and I have done in our children to build um, compassionate human beings who give a darn about other people. And that's how I was raised by my parents and my wife was raised by her parents. And then I've been a career safety health risk management professional who took a real interest in wellness, which evolved into this concept of well-being. And along the way, I recognized every job I've had since I was a high schooler working in healthcare to the present date 
mental health and taking care of underdogs has been a part of what I've done. And I've always had the ability to just help those people navigate big organizations, challenging times, and provide resources and really try to give people hope and to help them find their purpose. And yeah, so it's been a really so rewarding career, Mick. Yeah, yeah, I, I really, I bet. And, uh, you know, it's because of your amazing heart and your spirit and, uh, you know, who you are for your family and how you have raised your children says everything about who you are as a human and also everything about who you are as a professional too. So uh, I just really want to acknowledge you for that. And so what, what is your role now and who do you work for now? Yeah, for the prior six years, I was working for a construction company in Washington State. So my family had been living in Minnesota for 12 years, and I was working in the insurance industry, and I was dedicated to construction. So construction risk management, construction safety and health. And I did a lot of um, HR dabbling as well, which turned out to be helpful. But in March, on the 16th, the day before the rest of the world went shelter in place, work at home, I started a new job. So kind of timing is everything, right? Yeah. But my job is vice president of workforce risk and worker well-being. And the company I work for is called CSDZ. We're affiliated with the Holmes Murphy family of companies. And this is a company that's existed, CSDZ, for 101 years, Holmes Murphy for 86 years. But look how innovative they are to have this platform of well-being. And so it's a powerful opportunity. And they told me during COVID, take care of people, help companies, organizations, associations, and labor unions take care of construction workers. And I couldn't have had a better um, entree to my new job. So again, timing is everything. Yeah, it, it certainly is. And, and that's so great. Uh, what, a, what a wonderful position to have. Uh, so you... I, I kind of let the cat out of the bag early here and, and said that you are the authority in uh, suicide prevention in the construction industry and totally not self-proclaimed. Like this is all this is all backed up with a lot of resources and a lot of research out there that that I did before we even met. So uh, would you tell our audience how that all came about? Yeah, Mick, it took a long time for this to evolve. So notice people will say big heart, big spirit. No one said big brain because it took me a long time <laughs> to figure out this issue. If I was really good, I would have figured it out sooner. But um, all joking aside about a really serious topic, every job I've had touched on this concept of mental health. So in high school, I took specimens to a lab. And if you ask me, I was saving lives. And I graduated to work in an ER, the emergency room and the ICU. And ultimately, at age 18 through 19, worked on an organ transplant unit, kidneys, hearts, livers. I was around a lot of life and death. And the one pain I felt we could never comfort was a death by suicide. And that wasn't lost on me. I didn't know what to do with it, but I just remembered. And I remembered the pain and I'm like, how in the world can we do something about this? Didn't even know how big the problem was, but it was, let's not 
allow people to bully and let's not haze and let's look for opportunities to include people. And then I went on to graduate school, got a degree in city administration, worked for a county, worked for a city. In 1987, I was working to help first responders use officer assistance programs, like what we now call employee assistance programs. I learned a lot about resistance to mental health. And I learned a lot about confidentiality and I learned about barriers, but it also made me very effective at change management. So then I fast forward five years later, my first workplace suicide prevention project was using law enforcement to do risk assessments in municipal jails. I was trying to figure out how people were attempting or succeeding at suicide in a jail. And ultimately, that led to a real strategic project where we even did uh, law enforcement recruit training standards were changed. So I learned this concept of big picture, strategic thinking, being a change agent, solve problems, kind of like for that greater good. Yeah. And then if I fast forward, I was living in Chicago, working for an international insurance company. They moved our family out to the East Coast before 9-11. In 9-11, some of my inklings occurred where I saw construction workers in side-by-side with first responders, working in the same traumatic experiences and wondering who was taking care of them because people were taking care of first responders. Didn't know what to do about it. Had some conversations with people about employee assistance programs, but it wasn't anything very effective. Then I fast forward to post-Hurricane Katrina. I'd moved our family to Minnesota to work for a startup insurance company. And it was there where I was doing training on critical incident response and emergency preparedness and disaster response, helping companies take care of people when things were bad. And in between, I'd met a really powerful gentleman named Bob Vandepaul. He was working for a company called Crisis Care Network, and Bob shared with me concepts of critical incident, psychological first aid, and then how to communicate and provide leadership in times of crisis. Bob mentored me and then ultimately taught me about suicide prevention. Wow. And that's kind of what happened. Those were all the formative, but that was like putting it into a test tube and then shaking it up. I still needed to figure out what could we do and how could we help people, right? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so you also have had some personal experience with, uh, with suicide in your life too. Would you, would you be willing to tell us uh, some of your story of tragedy? Yeah, this was uh, very formative. The first experience I had with suicide was seeing my mother help one of her cousins overcome the death of his son by suicide. And I saw like her gift of compassion. And I saw how she in our neighborhood helped a mother deal as a survivor of a son's suicide. And so those things taught me about compassion, being empathetic, and then being supportive. And I also learned then don't judge people. And then realize stigma is powerful. People will avoid it. But in my personal life, I moved ultimately my family 
to the state of Washington to work for that construction company that allowed me to bake mental health and suicide prevention into our safety, risk, health, and wellness culture. And uh, that was the fall of 2014. In February of 2015, I lost a dear friend. I'd hired him in 2004. We became uh, great friends. My family loved him. He took my kids fishing. Um, he was nicknamed the big dog. His name was Jeff. And uh, I learned a lot, Mick. I learned that someone can tell you they're okay and not really be okay. Right. I learned how we wear these emotional masks. And I always knew it. I didn't realize how many times they were layered. And we had to peel off multiple masks. So like when Jeff would tell me he was okay, I should have gone further. One example is a picture. He's holding what is a near record trophy fish. He should be beaming ear to ear. And there was barely a smile on his face. That's a clue as a non-fisherman, I missed. Sure. Others then recognized, wow, we totally didn't see that. And one other lesson I learned is I felt if he was talking about fishing, family, and faith, that everything was okay. But the last clue that I missed, whenever I saw Jeff, the first thing that he would ask me, how's my work going with suicide prevention nationally? I'd been appointed to the National Action Alliance for Suicide Prevention in 2010. And Jeff knew what my vision was, that how could we help construction workers? And so when he asked me about my work, I thought that was his way of saying, no matter how bad things get, I'm fine. And I couldn't have been farther from the truth. So what do you, what do you think he was really asking about when he was asking how your work was going? Well, I hope he wasn't asking subliminally for help. I think he was being sincere, but I think as he um, slid into what I called the abyss, that darkness where light could no longer shine in, where he couldn't feel the love and the respect that people had for him, that uh, the darkness of depression blocked those feelings. I honestly believe he was being sincere, but I didn't recognize that when he slid away, that it was worse than it appeared. And what it taught me was urgency. And what I should have done that last week of his life, he didn't return six telephone calls. And I rationalized it that he was fishing in each case. A couple of those times I had the telephone and I would actually talk to myself, man, he must be fishing. One, I was trying to introduce him to one of my new coworkers. We were going to hire him at the company I was working with to do a project. And I said, hey, let's just call Jeff. He'll give us some ideas on how we could do this project. And so I'm leaving a voicemail. Jeff, it's Cal. Still trying to get a hold of you. Are you back from fishing yet? And then the next day, I left him another voicemail message later in the evening. And the next night, I was flying back from Washington State to Minnesota. And I left another message like, hey, Jeff, starting to worry me. Um, that's a heck of a fishing trip. What's going on? Give me a call. Still on for breakfast on Saturday? I went to the place of breakfast. He didn't show up. 
I left them one more call, Mick. Hey, Jeff, it's Cal. Clearly, we got our weeks messed up. This must be Sturgeon Excursion. You must be in northern Minnesota. Sorry about that. When you're back, I'm in town till Tuesday. Let me know. And it was that Monday that he took his life. Uh, and so how did how did how was that for you when you when you couldn't get in touch with him? Did you did you have any any thoughts about about the possibility of of him taking his life or something horrible happening? You you just thought he was fishing. Oh my goodness! Talk about rationalization. I now recognize how unusual it was. Six calls for him not to call back. Um, I feel a little bit embarrassed sometimes. I feel like a knucklehead. On the other hand, we're all human. We all uh, look for the good in people. We all think that uh, everything's going to be okay. I just recognized I missed some signs, one, as a friend, and then two, as a leader. And as I started piecing this together, none of what I've done was motivated by guilt. It was out of a sense of duty. Like, as a risk and safety professional, I was blindsided. And so that whole week, now if I didn't hear from someone after a second or a third call, depending on what I know about them, I'm calling their wife, I'm calling their spouse, I'm calling another friend, I'm sending um, multiple texts to multiple people. Hey, has anyone seen? Has anyone talked to Jeff? Is he okay? Yeah. So, so how did you find out about what happened? Yeah. And that was really hard. I um, had gone back to Minnesota. My family stayed there. Took about a year for the kids and my wife to come to Washington to catch up with me. Um, And so I was at home taking a long weekend and we were playing a board game that Monday late afternoon. And so the phone rang and I'm like, let it go because we're doing family time. And Settlers of Catan. I'll probably never forget that game. Yeah. To this day, it's hard for me to play because I, I equate that with, uh, with that call. Mm-hmm. My family doesn't always recognize that that's why dad doesn't always like to play that game. Um, and Mick, that's probably the first time I've even articulated that. So thank you for letting me uh, share. That's, uh, that's how much I trust you. Yeah, thank you. With, with this story. And then I heard his oldest daughter. Hey, Cal, it's Aaron. If you're still around, mom and I want to talk with you. And I jumped up and I ran to the answering machine about 25 feet away. And I said, oh my God, he must have had a car accident coming back from fishing. Uh, It shows you how locked in I was that he was fishing. Yeah. Jeff was a flatliner, Mick, about everything other than fishing. (laughs) It was his life. And so I got caught up on that. And they proceeded to tell me, Cal, we have some bad news. And we want to call you first because we know that you're still here in Minnesota. And uh, Jeff passed away today. And uh, oh my gosh, uh, I can't believe this. Like, are you guys okay? Is there anything I can do to help? No, we're going to be okay. They're very tough, Minnesota, super uh, self-reliant, very resilient. And then uh, I'm like, wow, I'm, uh, I'm floored. Like, do you want me to come over? No, you spend time with your family. Uh, we're going to get together and we're going to 
you know, start the, the process. And then they said, we just want to thank you for being such a good friend to Jeff. You meant the world to him. He not only loved you, but he respected you, cared a lot. You helped Jeff through some rough times. You helped our family a lot. And so we just want you to know here's how much Jeff cared about you. And they shared some pretty personal details from a note that Jeff had left. And um, those words included, sorry about the phone calls. And so my wife was the first to crack that code, Mick. She said, Jeff didn't want your help. He knew you were there. He knew you were available. And that helped me understand how someone could lose hope. And if someone lost hope, even a source of light and strength isn't enough. And that's what made me say, there has to be more urgency. We've got to stop being afraid to talk about suicide. We've got to teach people it's okay to not be okay. I didn't know those words at that point, but that's what I was feeling. Well, but so so tell tell us how that actually happened. How did that come about, Cal? I mean, that must have been a horrible moment in your life. Like what what was going through your mind? What did it feel like when you got the news? And then and and how did you get to the point where you knew that this was a mission that you were going to take on? Yeah, sadly, Mick, I'd felt it was a mission previously, but I was the guy who was afraid to use the S word at work, mostly because people weren't ready for it. Not only that I wasn't ready to use it, most of the people I was helping take care of people in their companies weren't ready to talk about suicide prevention as a safety, health, and wellness initiative. And so that was one lesson. So when Jeff would ask me about my work with suicide prevention, he knew I had a vision that our industry could be a high-risk population. Uh He knew that I had no data because there was no study done, but he knew that I had analyzed like a risk management analyst would do. And I knew what the risk factors were, and I was trying to teach people. And Mick, what The painful realization was by me talking about mental health instead of talking about suicide, it kept people from embracing this as an urgent safety need. It made it seem like it was private, personal, confidential. It made HR directors a little bit nervous, like that's what we have HIPAA for. We shouldn't really be talking about this. And as soon as Dr. Sally Spencer Thomas taught me to make it, okay to use both mental health and suicide prevention. The first time I did, someone said, oh my gosh, I had no idea. How can I help? And I did that proverbial, like I could have had a V8, you know, pound my fist on my head. Like seriously, it was that easy. I totally missed it. But I fast forwarded. So what happened, uh, Mick, it was painful but I'm a risk manager. I've been around hardship. I've been around uh, pain. I've helped companies through bad days. I went in critical incident response mode and I take care of everyone else and just I'll check my own feelings. I'll deal with them uh, when they come up. 
And so I stay busy, I get focused, and then I'm distracted, right? Doing the typical guy thing. And I'm fine. Nope, I am. I'm good. Don't worry about me. I'm tough. I'm a caregiver. And that's like legit. That's how I roll. Sure. And I took care of my family because they were grieving Jeff. They were concerned about me, but they knew I was strong. I was trying to help Jeff. And then I was trying to take care of our former coworkers. So I'm at the memorial, you know, his wake. I'm uh, meeting with people, talking with people. They all knew that I was doing suicide prevention since I no longer worked for that company. They knew that I'd gone to Washington State. I was trying to lead this initiative. Um, so that was kind of that reality. And then what happened is I had to go back to Washington before his funeral, after his wake, before his funeral. I had a leadership team meeting that the CFO, company president, even my colleague, don't come back for that. Nope. Duty calls, right? That's, again, that's how I roll. And I hope some of your listeners will go, this guy is pretty normal. That's what I would have done. Sure. Deal yeah. with it later, right? And duty called. And I flew back to Minnesota to be there for his memorial. And at his memorial, his family read a few testimonials from some friends. And uh, that was painful to hear my words. Um, And yet it was gratifying that the family, you know, was being honest and open and sharing about his cause of death in hopes of helping others. And then Mick, um, the next couple hours, we um, lingered, but his wife said to me, Cal, if you ever get a chance to make your voice any louder, do so to help other families from feeling the pain that we feel. And Mick, the way she said it, I was part of her family. She was bringing me into that inner circle, and I was being entrusted to tell Jeff's story. And so I talked about the dear friend, and I talked about the pain. I talked about the urgency and the lessons I learned, and I had no clue, and I was not going to let more people slip through the cracks. So then I flew back to Washington because I had to get back to my normal life. And on the plane, I wrote a poem, and I hadn't really done that since high school. It was called The Abyss, and I wanted to write so I could understand how someone so full of life had gotten to that point, because I wanted to understand. Yeah. And then I thought I was fine until I got to the remote parking lot, and I had to drive myself back to the apartment I was renting until my family moved and we would buy a house. And I... um Walked around the vehicle, kicking the tires, using a few choice words, mostly just darn and dang and words like that. A couple other choice words, but, uh, and then a gentleman, hey, sir, you okay? You having car trouble? No, I'm good. Okay. Look like you might be having car trouble. I'm like, nope, tires are fine. Air pressure is good. And he walked over toward me. Sure you're not having car trouble? It's not car trouble. Uh, sorry, sir. I'm okay. Uh, said a funeral today. I'm a little bit upset. Didn't want to drive yet and, uh, I'll be okay. And he did something, Mick, I'm never going to probably forget, but he put his hand on my shoulder. Okay. I just wanted to make sure you were okay. Yeah. And that's what I would have done. 
And I took that as like an experience of grace. Like I needed that. And it empowered me. Because as he, thank you, sir. I really appreciate that. That's a play out of my playbook. It made me feel good. Thank you. You um, have a safe drive home. Give your, uh, give your family a hug. And um, we shook hands. He got to his car. Saw him pull out. And I literally screamed in the remote parking lot. And I'm like, that's it. I'm declaring war on suicide. You're going to take one of the good times? Good guys, next time you come through me, game on. And uh, when I've told that story, it's kind of scared a few of my friends. It scared a few coworkers like, oh, my gosh. You're you're a passionate man on a mission, Cal. That's that's what I hear, 100%. So I got back to the reality. I got to go back to work. I got to explain to people why I didn't take time off. Honestly, guys, I'm good. Jeff knew I loved him and I'm going to find a way to avenge it. But if I cocoon for the next 30 to 45 days, no one freak out. I'm just going to try to figure out what I need to do. And Mick, I came out stronger out of that cocoon. I did check in with people. That friend, Bob Vandepaul, I mentioned, Dr. Sally Spencer Thomas, they were there. I could say, I don't understand. I need some help. Like, no, like help me be stronger. Like what else can I do? So would you tell us a little bit about that? I mean, you know, this is, you were grieving. There was a ton of feelings that came up. I'm sure, you know, you, you, you talked a little bit about what happened in the, in the parking lot there, but I'm sure it didn't end there. Right. And I know that you used that feeling to, to fuel, you moving forward to, you know, take on the mission, but you you know, you're talking about these people that helped you. What, what had you ask for help and how was that process? How did it work? Well, I'm very fortunate that Bob Vandepaul, that, that gentleman who was a mentor, that he always made himself available. He is a professional crisis coach and crisis counselor. And so I couldn't have had a better mentor at this. And so Bob really was a person that I could call and he always found a way to either inject humor or to inject reality. And depending on what I needed, it felt like it was always the right dose. So he listened and then he asked questions and then how you feel about that. And so what are you thinking? And how does that change what you're trying to do? Well, nothing. It just makes me bolder. Okay. Well, how are you going to harness that? How are you going to channel it? Like you want to really focus like, and it's okay. If you take time out, it's okay. If you're delay this, like you got to take care of yourself first. Yeah. And then, so that was powerful, right? I think there's a couple things you're hinting at. It's like seeking help is different than accepting help. And, and, and both. You, you totally do. And it's not easy to go, it's not easy to do either one of those things. You know, there's especially, especially, you know, uh, 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 people that have that, that, that drive to keep going, you know, that, that mask you were talking about before, right. That, you know, you, you it, it took something from you to, to really choose to go and seek the help and then also it took something from you to actually accept it and act on it. So what was, 
what did it take for you? And what was that like? Yeah. You know, I don't know that I've uh, processed it at that level. I think I knew that Bob was a safe haven for me. And so I used Bob previously. And then Dr. Sally Spencer Thomas was the person that I was partnering with to launch this initiative. She had lost a brother to suicide and I'd learned a lot about how she channeled and processed her grief. And so when Sally would say to me, Cal, it's okay, slow down, take care of yourself. I am, this is therapeutic. Like I want to do something because I don't want anyone else slipping through the cracks. Like I feel that I'm on a path and, um, that's going to help people help others. So you had a purpose. It was a purpose. purpose. You had something that you were truly fired up about. You were inspired and you, you, you had a, a, you know, that fire in your belly. Yeah. And it burned hot. Um, Sometimes I felt singed and scorched around the edges and I was really trying to not, um, be too bold in the workplace, like just bold enough. I'd made a commitment to that company president who allowed me to do this before Jeff died, that I was not going to outrun the supply line. I was going to wait for people to be ready. And so I was really having to guard myself. And my outlet was, well, great. We're still leaders here in this organization, but I can be pushing people on the outside and no one knows how hard I'm pushing because I didn't make a commitment anywhere else. So I'm going to go change the darn industry. And as we do things here, then people will be ready for it. And so Mick, that's truly what happened. Yeah. And we started a thing. I started a thing called the media saturation campaign. And I felt like maybe the one thing I can do, I knew a lot of people from the industry having been a consultant and having been a national officer in an association, I felt like I can leverage all those relationships and maybe I can teach them about stigma. So if we do this media saturation campaign, and I thought I was being bold, here's how modest our goals were. I'm going to submit 12 article submissions, and I want to get six published in the next three years. So the first one was published on November 1st of 2015. And today, less than five years later, there have been over 215 different articles in different trade publications for the construction industry. That's amazing. That's a media saturation campaign. It sure is. And didn't write them all. I wrote about 40. Uh, Sally Spencer Thomas and I, Bob Vandepaul, we probably co-authored another 10, 12 of those. But we've recruited other authors. We've recruited other speakers. We ended up uh, doing some amazing things. But it started with those publications. And all of a sudden, people started following. Yeah. And then what do great leaders do when people follow? You recruit more. And then we had this little army of helpers. And it became a cause. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, nobody, nobody can create a cause like this and a ripple effect like this by themselves. So this, this also sounds like it took quite a bit of humility on your part as well. Oh, like the humility, probably more so like vulnerability, right? Yeah. To put yourself out and have people say you're now an expert and you're like, uh, not clinical. I'm just a safety and health guy with a big heart. I care about people. 
But the more uh, vulnerable I was, the more humble like that I was, the more people kind of followed. And I want to help point me, play me. And uh, it ultimately led in October of 2016 to the formation of what's known as the Construction Industry Alliance for Suicide Prevention. And that is incredible to me that that's existed for four years, almost to the date, Mick. That, that's amazing. So how do, how do we find that organization? Do they, is there a website or other resources that you can point us to? Yeah, that's great. Thank you for that. It's um, the Construction Industry Alliance for Suicide Prevention. And the website is www.preventconstructionsuicide.com. I think about how direct that URL is. And for four years ago, that was bold. Oh, yeah. And it was done by my friends at the Construction Financial Management Association. Um, when Sally and I were talking, okay, now that we've done the media saturation campaign, we've got four or five articles in the pipeline. Sally was like, Cal, what, what's next? What do you have in mind? I'm like, now we have to go attack associations. Now we need a construction subcommittee on that National Action Alliance for Suicide Prevention. I always had three, four, five next steps. And so she's like, okay, what are you thinking? I go, associations are one of the heart lifelines. Um, of the construction industry. It's one of the, the just the pulse of, of our industry, our, our associations that serve us. And I said to her, like one day I was like, oh my gosh, I know I can get the Construction Financial Management Association. And she's like, but they're accountants, like they're CFOs. How are you? Like I was expecting, I go, what? You're surprised? Yeah, I was expecting it was going to be a safety group. And I'm like, no. Here's how it's going to play out. This is human capital risk management. If people are our number one asset in construction, these are the people that are going to get it. Yeah. And there's too much risk for safety. There's too much risk for HR. Didn't have a way to just get to the owners of the companies. So we went to the CFOs and they said, we understand it is human capital risk management. And Mick, I looked, I'd been planting seeds since 2007 through 2010 before the recession about human capital risk management. And then this, I said, so this has been my setup. I didn't realize it, but we have to take better care of our people. They're hurting. Their families are hurting. This is an opportunity for us to rethink safety. It's amazing. It's amazing. Now, I had to use a little bit of manipulation and a little bit of guile. And I don't know if I should be telling that to a professional coach. Ah, oh, that, that's all right. It's all right. We're all, we're all human. Maybe I'll claim that I'm just being an Eddie Haskell. But uh, <laughs> what I said to them was, you've always been the brains of the construction industry. Show people that you're the heart. Went right to the heart. But they bought it like hook, line, and sinker. And then they started that group. And in 2018, it became a separate nonprofit. It has a group of trustees. And people say, well, Cal, were you the first chairperson? No, I didn't want to be. I wanted to be out in the forefront. I wanted to be the, the 
the icebreaker, like in Lake Michigan, the Coast Guard sends out those icebreakers yeah. to kind of smash the ice so the rest of the ships can navigate. I felt like that breaking stigma was what I was able to do best. Yeah. Yeah. So, but I'm still their biggest, uh, I hope I'm their biggest advocate. And if I'm not, then kudos to those people. Cause yeah, what, what an amazing story. What an amazing story. Yeah. So, so you, you started off on this mission to prevent suicide in the construction industry. You had your own personal experience of tragedy in that area in your life. You were clearly impacted by that. Uh, you sought out help and support and you, you were willing to be vulnerable and get what you needed. And you've already started telling us a little bit about how, how life is now and what what's going on in that in that mission that you've started now what else what else would you like to share with the audience about how it is now i pinch myself when i look at how our industry has embraced this i'm really proud to work in an industry that for years i felt maybe we didn't understand that human side we were strong leaders, and that meant we were production-focused. We do have caring leaders, and the caring culture is how we get people um, help. It's how we get them to take care of themselves and their family. And, you know, one turning point I, I skipped was an opportunity to reframe this as a safety topic. So most construction companies believed in getting people home safe at the end of a shift. If I was in a group doing a leadership training class or a safety or risk management class, and I asked, hey, by show of hands, how many of you believe in safety 24-7, getting everyone home safe at the end of a shift? 95% of hands would go up. How many of you have a slogan, you know, like this? Their hands would all go up. And I'm like, so here is our new challenge. It's no longer enough to get people back home safe at the end of a shift. For people at risk, it's more important to get them back to work safe from home. And that is so compelling. And it stuck. It made it a tipping point. And the first three, four times that I used that at a conference, where people had asked me to come and speak, I'd look at people and I'd say, I know you want me to repeat that. Yeah. I said, you know, the first time I used that at a conference last month, I had to say it twice to convince myself that I was saying it right. And so again, not enough to get people home safe at the end of a shift. It's more important to get them back to work safe from home. And that allowed me then to talk about our people who are struggling are suffering in silence. They have shame because they don't know who to turn to, how to ask, and it might not be politically correct. It might be risky in that organization to ask for help. And Mick, the reality is one in five adults will have a diagnosable mental health condition in their lifetime. And so that's one clue. Number two, financial pressures before the pandemic, we're rocking 
society. Almost 70% of families live paycheck to paycheck. And if someone hasn't taught someone in construction, they're thinking they're making good money. But if someone hasn't taught them to squirrel money away for the off season when they're not working, our industry still is seasonal in some regards and it's cyclical. Yeah. And so you don't get your pension until you retire. You might not have enough to live on. And that creates a lot of stress, a lot of tension. Think about the hours some of your clients work and their crews work. Early mornings, up at 4, leave the house by 4.20, drive for an hour to get there, do the warm-up, fuel the trucks, right? The shift might not start till 6. So much of that time isn't paid, right? These are sacrifices our workers make to build monuments. And so you think about the pressure we have in construction, the perfection, the pride. When we make a mistake, we beat ourselves up, right? And so I'm giving you just some of these clues, but we're away from our families. We've got that provider gene and we don't work. We don't get paid and there's not food on the table. And so we don't always seek healthcare. And if it's hard enough to get physical healthcare, then it's probably even harder to get mental healthcare. And the reality is 60% of the counties in the U S don't have a psychologist. There's not enough of those to go around. So we have to make things like employee assistance programs accessible to our employees and their families so they can take care of those stressors that become distractions that cause safety and quality issues that lead to more pressure and more problems. So you're, you, you're talking a lot about workplace conditions and, you know, the timing when the job needs to get done and and all those sorts of things. You also mentioned leadership a few moments ago, and I'm curious what your take is on the culture inside of the organization and how it plays a role in mental health. Culture is huge. The number one barrier that needed to be overcome was leadership support. So Sally Spencer Thomas and I, back in 2016, wrote an article where we called Suicide Prevention in Construction a Leadership Imperative. And we described 10 questions leaders must ask. And to this day, I refer people to it. It's on that website, the Construction Industry Alliance for Suicide Prevention. If people tell me, yeah, I don't know if my leader is going to buy into it, give them this document. And I'll be astounded if they don't understand why this is real. So I think there were a lot of those tools on equipping and shaping culture. We called it an imperative. And then we called it baking mental health and suicide prevention into safety, health, and wellness culture that expanded to programs and practices to say, okay, culture is one thing, but now your people have to see it. So make it practices. I think that's where I'm just really pleased to see that people understand we need to figure out what's under the hard hat. What are the things that distract our workers and that gray matter matters, you know, our brains, you can't have health without mental health and the interface between our physical health and our mental health is where well-being is going to take us to that next level. And, um, I'm really excited to see people starting to think more holistically 
about these things in construction. So culture, leadership, huge. Frontline supervisors and peers make all the difference in the world. Yeah, I'm, 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 I almost, almost cut you off. I'm sorry about that because <laughs> I was, I was going to ask about that. You know, it's not only, it's not only somebody in a leadership position, right? Like a lot of the, in, in a lot of the work that we do, we say that leadership is not a title. It's a way of being. You know, yes, people, absolutely. People have these management titles, uh, but this is this is as much peer to peer communication and, and how people are with each other at, at work as it is, you know, coming from frontline supervisors and, and company owners and stuff like that. So what can you share with us about how to teach employees how to be with each other that is going to support them and, and create a positive culture and build people up versus tear people down? Man, I love it. And I think, Mick, that's where when you and I met, that's where we went immediately. Yeah. You as a coach, me as a non-certified coach, you as a certified coach, because you kept saying like, Cal, I just hear you have all these coaching techniques, all these coaching skills. I've always viewed myself in that regard. And maybe it was because I was um, an above average youth uh, sports coach, right? I'm from uh, the Midwest. I can use that word but I always poured my heart into coaching because that's how you build others up, right? And so what we were doing in the workplace was coaching people. We were encouraging leaders at all levels and we were asking them to observe their peers and be their brothers and sisters keepers. And it was a really powerful movement. And so we taught them through role-playing how to ask if someone was okay. We did a scenario and we called it, are you okay? And the scenario had a description where we said, here is a little case study. You notice this person isn't acting normal. So you see a behavioral change like they ordinarily would act. So you decide to go ask, is everything okay? Are you safe to work today? How are you going to respond if that person says, no, we got a bad family situation. I'm not able to work today. Well, here's some resources. So we were teaching them how to call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. And, and Mick, since we're here, I'll just give that to your, to your listeners. Please. If you're at a point where you can write this down, maybe you're not driving a car right now. It's uh, the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, 800-273-8255. And if you're a veteran, Thanks for your service and your sacrifice. You can press one and that takes you to the veterans crisis line. And uh, you can press two if, uh, if you're Spanish and you need that uh, assistance in, uh, in, in the Spanish language. The second one we taught was crisis text line. We let them know you may find people that don't want to be on a telephone. So let them know there's an alternative. And this crisis text line was really powerful. We had employees who shared how we'd shared that number with them a year earlier and how they got help. So there was one gentleman, he was um, not a leader in his work crew, but he was well-known, well-liked, respected for his skill on a, on a rolling. Um, he was an equipment operator, so on his roller. And he shared at a group meeting how he had struggled to... Um, to sleep well at night and he was worried 
Am I going to be able to get up in the morning? Am I going to be able to go to work? And here's what he said. I knew if I could get my boots on, I would be okay. I have a crew that cares about me and my company cares about me. But from 10 to midnight or midnight to two in the morning, he was stewing and wondering. So a couple of times he called me and I'm like, man, this is not going to be good for my mental health. Plus, I'm not a counselor. I need you to call, you know, Suicide Prevention Lifeline. I'm not going to kill myself. I know you're not, but they have really good people, really good resources. Would you be willing to text Crisis Text Line? So there it's 741-741 and you text help or connect and you'll get back an automated reply. They're looking for a counselor. And the first time he did, I don't know, just will you try it? I've never steered you wrong. I'm taking good care of you, but I want you to have a professional. I'm not a crisis coach. So he agreed. And then he called me. That was awesome. Someone answered within 30 seconds and I had a quick text and me just knowing that someone's there, if I need them, I'm going to sleep like a baby tonight. And then he called me in the morning. I go, all right, check in with me in the morning. Let me know that you're okay. And he goes, that was the best night's sleep I had. So then he told people, Okay, if anyone struggles, if you got insomnia, if you got worries, if you can't sleep, if you have a panic attack, and he started telling people and other people. So, like, I've got a daughter, she's got some uh, issues. Like, you know, that one sounds like you want to call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. So, Mick, the powerful thing if you take care of people, they want to take care of others. Yeah. And it became this uh, organic movement, it just started to grow. It's beautiful. So you see that in coaching, you see that in leadership and before you know it all day long, all the time. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, before you know it, people's coworkers start to be for each other, how you were for this gentleman that you're talking about. And then like the next time we did a divisional meeting, we had an employee who wanted to share a personal story. And there was a day when we had a divisional meeting with 75 people, we merged two divisions. And even with not full familiarity, three employees stood up and shared stories. And two of them went with one of the safety directors to teach other safety directors. So we took a mechanic and a plant operator, took them to a safety meeting to talk to them about how to teach employees about mental health as a, a safety topic. Wow. And that was a turning point because I think I took calls from eight safety directors in the next two days. Like I'm embarrassed. Your hourly employees know more about this than I do as a safety professional. I should be embarrassed. Don't. This was a big leap of faith. I didn't educate people well enough. I didn't get everywhere fast enough. This is an opportunity for a fresh start. How can I help you? Never judge, right? That's right. Probably in the coach's handbook. Yeah, uh, it has to be a judgment-free zone in order for any awesome. any conversation like this to to work. So one one final question here for you, and then we'll and then we'll wrap it up. So knowing knowing what you know now, after all the hundreds of articles you've written, all of the work that you've done, all of the people that you've met, all of the difference that you've seen made uh, as a result of your work, what would you have done with Jeff? Wow. I would have checked in more frequently 
And I would ask, as I've now learned, ask directly about suicide. I'd never done that. And I didn't know about it for another year and a half. In the past, there was a lot of myths around talking about suicide. The myth was it could make someone think about it. And that was broken. It's not a real um, fact. It's a myth. And so now people will teach you in suicide prevention training, and I teach it, ask directly about suicide. So what I should have done, Jeff, you seem detached. Are you suffering right now from depression? Because I'm seeing changes in your behavior. Are you losing some of that sense of hope? And if he would have said yes to any one of those three questions, I would have said, Jeff, sometimes when people lose hope or feel depressed, they think about suicide. Are you thinking about killing yourself? And it would have given me a clue. If he'd paused or hesitated, I would have said, hey, Jeff, let's call uh, the Suicide Prevention Lifeline. Let's make sure you're getting the help that you need. And I think really what you're saying is, you know, if there's a person listening today, don't lose hope. Look for helpers. Follow the light. And ask someone for help. Society is more accepting about discussing mental health and suicide prevention. We recognize that times are tough, especially with this pandemic. Most of us are feeling more stress, anxiety. There's a lot of pressures. Mick, you and I have been talking about the civil unrest. We've been talking about the tension around the election, the, uh, the economic uncertainties, right? And if people are feeling pressure, please reach out, ask for help. That National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, these are wonderful people. You won't be judged. They will look to help you. And the same with Crisis Text Line. Your company may have an employee assistance program. They're very likely to have free counseling sessions available to you. Most of that's being done telephonically because of the pandemic. But there's opportunities for you to be well. And the last thing I would share, there's a powerful story. And Mick, I'm going to send you information so you can post it. But a gentleman named Kevin Hines survived a jump from the Golden Gate Bridge 20 years ago. And Kevin tells a story of hope, help, and recovery. He said the second milliseconds of jumping from that bridge, he had instant regrets that he knew he had made a mistake. He lived to tell about it. And when you think about a ripple effect, the ripple effect is globally, he tells this story. College campuses, community centers, arenas, military bases. The ripple effect is all the people that he touches. So take from Kevin, his website, the Kevin Hines story, has powerful testimonials. There's videos, there's resources. You're not weak if you have mental health worries. Kevin is one of the strongest people I know, and he'll talk about his story of survival. And there's hope in that. It shows you that you can get help and recovery. And um, that's what I want people to take away. Suicide can be preventable 
but only if we talk about it and only if we encourage people to get help, even if that person is ourselves. Yeah. Look, for for everybody out there, mental health issues are 100% normal. As a matter of fact, it's, uh, it's, it's less normal for a person to not have any uh, any signs of anxiety or depression or um, or anything of the like. So this is not something that makes you weak or wrong or a bad person in any way. Uh, to to Cal's point, so to to anybody out there, just know that that's what this show is all about. For people to realize that they're normal, uh, that we all have things that um, uh, we're not proud of, uh, feelings that we're not proud of. And it's only going to, we're only going to get help if we, if we're willing to say something about it. So, uh, I wish everybody the courage to get that help and to speak up. And we're here to keep the, these stories coming out so that, uh, it gives people strength and hope. So Cal, thank you so much for being here today and sharing your story uh, of tragedy to triumph and for the work that you're doing out in the world. You are an amazing leader. I am so blessed and grateful that uh, I hunted you down on LinkedIn and that we've, you know, built the friendship and the and the partnership that we have. And I, I just I just need you to know how uh, how much of a difference that you make out in the world because you've made a difference for me. So thank you. Um, Mick, I can't thank you enough. Um, honored. I love the title of this podcast series. Um, it gave me goosebumps because I need to hear and learn from other leaders as well. And uh, you and I have been talking about who are people that we know that you're going to be able to feature. And we're all going to be uplifted by this theme, uh, tragedy to triumph. And then secondly, I just want to tell you, I uh, appreciate that you hunted me down or stalked me, whatever the right word is. And I'm really like proud and pleased to have a new friend in you um, through the pandemic. That will be one of the silver linings. And so thank you from afar, you out in Maryland, me out here um, in Washington State. But uh, we're only a phone call away. And uh, thank you for, you know, all the stuff that you and I are collaborating on now. It means uh -huh. a lot. Thank, thank you. It's an honor and a pleasure. Mine as well. All right. Thank you for being here, Cal. Thanks again, Mick. All the best. You too. Thank you. It's our hope that this story makes a difference for another person. If it helps one person, we believe we've done our work. Consider telling a friend about this podcast. You might just make a difference for them too. Accomplishment Coaching, the world's finest coaches training program. I owe much of the man I am today to the work I've done and the relationships I've built in this community. For anybody out there who wants to start a career as a coach or enhance their skills as a coach, look no further. Transform your life and set yourself up to win in your coaching business at the same time. Find out more at accomplishmentcoaching.com.